Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. Megan is off this episode. She'll be back next week. Today, we're going to be talking about Silas Marner, which is George Eliot's 1861 novel about a linen weaver in the English Midlands who adopts a mysterious child. That sounds way more spooky than it actually is. Like, it, it, I mean, there are some spooky scenes in this, but it's it's not like a, it's not the fucking turn of the screw or whatever. <laughs> it does sound highly sinister when you yeah. put it that way. It's it's not. It's it's heartwarming or mythic or something like that. Okay, so why is Silas Marner? So this was my pick. I've been wanting to read Elliot for a long time. She's one of those extremely famous writers that despite having taken a lot of 19th century courses in college and grad school, I've, I've really not engaged that much with. I, I think I may have read one of her, her books um, like my freshman year of college. I think I'm going to do Middlemarch as my two-parter in a couple seasons, which people have requested. <laughs> Silas Martyr, which is not 11 million pages long, unlike Middlemarch, seemed like a good intro for me to figure out the things Elliot's thinking about and and maybe just how to engage with that that much longer novel. Um, but I, I love Silas Marner. Uh, critics always talk about how complex a novelist Eliot is. Philosophy and lit people love her. Religion and lit people love her. Uh, vulgar Marxist historical materialists like me love talking about her. And I think in Silas Marner, you can really see why. You know, Eliot's fiction deals with many of the consequences of the rise of industrial capital in Britain, how it unsettled older economic forms, class relations, sociality, but also how modernity has unsettled older ways of knowing and thinking. Her critique, I think, is generally lib, like that's a fairly common reputation she has, which is also like the default state of the famous Victorian novelist T.M. Like they all were fucking libs, basically. It's like we can't puzzle our minds with such matters that pertain to the non lib imagination. No, exactly. Well, and I mean, partially, I think that has to do with the political currents that were active in Britain. Oh, they're not entirely. I mean, there's, there is a radical tradition, certainly, in Britain. But yeah, but, well, that's something like fucking Benjamin Disraeli, you know, prime minister and also a Tory, right? <laughs> but like, and, and novelist, which is crazy, the prime minister novelist, anyway. Strange country. Um, oh. but, but yeah, so Elliot is not radical. I think people generally tend to read her as being quite skeptical of radical solutions to the social problems she writes about. But, and kind of like with Charles Dickens, if you remember, I complained a lot about this in the Christmas Carol episode, those commitments don't stop her from producing some really compelling accounts of oppressive social transformations. And yeah, this it was I doing research for this episode, I found out when Silas Marner came out in 1861, a lot of Tory critics were like, ew, it talks about poor people in realist and not idealizing terms. That's gross. Like, <laughs> why would you do that? Which is, it's weird that they thought that it was so realist, given that people tend to talk about the narrative in Silas Marner as mythic, which we'll talk a little bit about that means. But hey, that critique means Elliot was doing something right if she's pissing off the biggest chuds in Victorian Britain. So anyway, I look forward to it. That's a very fair standard of measuring so- whether something's good or not. Is does it piss off British chuds? Yes. <laughs> if exactly. yes, it is good. Brit- British chuds with ridiculous mutton chop sideburns or bird sides or other facial hair that they had at that period. <laughs> if they have mutton chops, I'm not into it. I actually didn't want to read this. I didn't not want to read it, but the reason why I can't say that I wanted to read it for any honest reason is because. Somehow I always get it mixed up with the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Like, <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense because I know what that is. But that 
association has simply lodged itself so deeply in my brain that there's nothing I can do now except expect this to be a poem about a bird and some guys on a ship. It does um, have like a Col- Coleridgean uh, feel to it and also a, a, a William Wordsworth feel to it, which I apparently Elliot loved Wordsworth's poem, Michael, which like every fucking poem that Wordsworth wrote, it was like the poor, we feel bad for them, but it's important that we keep them poor so that I can have beautiful poetic feelings about them. <laughs> y- yes, and it's even better if they're dead or almost dead. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, yeah, wasting away. Yeah, you can produce um, beautiful eight hundred lines. Like I said, I mean it, Coleridge, but certain like this could definitely like Silas Marner. You could totally convince me as a Wordsworth poem title. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, sure, why not? So once I got myself sorted out and realized this was George Eliot, I've never read any George Eliot. Yeah. So, and the way that you said middle March, when you said, I think I'm going to do middle March next season for the two parter, <laughs> that's like how people say, like, I think I'm going to do ayahuasca. <laughs> and so, so there's like a little bit of that around George Eliot in general that yeah. got me amped to, to read this. The actual book itself, I'm really excited to talk about the religion stuff. Big, huge, giant surprise there. <laughs> yeah. But also just how damn weird this book is truly three quarters of it is about how large his eyes are there's like a 16 year (laughs) break for no reason that i can discern except just nothing happened yeah yeah yeah. and just the balancing scales of fail sons and success daughters is (laughs) it makes quite a fine piece of literature in a book that is Maybe like the densest thing I've ever read somehow, in spite of it not being particularly philosophically complicated. It's like when you pick up a small dog and it just like it's just eaten or or, or there's shit in it. It's just like too heavy. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, and that is, a th- I mean, so I've, I have had some some MA students who've worked on Elliot. And like one thing I've learned from the really cool projects they've done is just that she's like so invested and concerned in so many different giant themes, right? Like you could totally mm-hmm. write a book chapter on this that is just about the religious aspect. You could write another book chapter that doesn't even touch that as an entirely about economic change. You know, so yeah, there there is definitely a lot. A lot packed in there, and it is—it's dense, but in a in a way that uh, it's not like reading George Meredith or like a better example, like Henry James. There's a liveliness to it, I guess you know. But yeah, it's also—it's not just about furniture, which Henry James is. <laughs> 20 pages on furniture. <laughs> just yeah. I can read the IKEA catalog if that's what I'm looking for in my afternoon. But I love Henry James. I'm just being uh, Yeah, I do too. I before people like uh James fans yell yell at me. No, I, I like Henry James, but it's you know, I enjoyed reading this. Like I, I generally enjoy having read a Henry James novel, if that makes sense. Then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a different immersion experience. I'll say that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. So today we are going to be talking about religion and belief structures in the novel. We're going to be talking about economics and labor. And we're also going to be talking about how Silas Marner engages with uh, changing class relations. Okay. So I'll do the summary. The summary itself is kind of dense. It was a, it, it, it is, there is a lot here to, to kind of to work through. So the novel spans three periods in the life of the protagonist, a guy named Silas Marner. 
who is a linen weaver originally from an unspecified industrializing city that I think it's safe to assume is just Manchester. It's not named, but it's it's definitely Manchester or or a city that is almost identical in historical experience to Manchester. Dates aren't specified, but we're imagining 30 years, uh, like the, the novel spanning 30 years that roughly start in the 1790s and end kind of in like the 1820s. So 40 to 60 years before when Eliot is writing. As background, and, and this is hinted at a few times in the novel, Silas Marner is set during a massive transformation in the British textile industry towards steam-powered factories and away from a cottage industry model where weavers were like independent artisans who were contracted to work in their own homes. We'll talk about that, but I just wanted to flag that there is an always already residual quality of village life that the novel mainly focuses on. Like it is, like I, I was, I mean, this was one thing I was kind of wondering as I was reading is like if it's fair to think of this as a historical novel. I mean, it's set in the past. It, it, it's a little more fable or mythic than we tend to think of that. But it, it's also, I think, very cognizant that it's like describing a world that no longer exists when Elliot is, is writing. It's not as if he's in a snow globe. It sort of is a snow globe feeling. It feels like historical in the same way that a Christmas memory feels historical if that makes sense yeah that's an interesting comparison but i i think the one that gets that gets to what i'm sort of after yeah i mean we wouldn't really think of that as like sort of consciously historicized maybe because it is that that kind of like fable thing but at the same time i think it, it definitely there's no way to read it without realizing that you are you know dealing with a world that is not the current one or, or uh, you know the current one at the time of its publication or something like that yeah so in his native city Marner is a member of an evangelical church that refers to itself as the Brethren of Lantern Yard, which is the location of their chapel. And Katie, when I when I read that first chapter, I was like, "Oh, Katie is going to be fucking into this book." <laughs> like, yup, and it's I was from the craft brewery ass church name. Yes, yeah, yeah. To what happens inside of the church? I loved it all the way down. Yeah, the, the brethren. Yeah, try the try our brethren of Lantern Yard double IPA, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Silas Marner Ale, come on. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, by, by the Ladder Yard Brewery, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so it's an evangelical community. It's not specified as to what strain of evangelicalism Lantern Yard belongs to, and I think it's probably like a hodgepodge, right? The novel tells us they only do adult baptism. Like, there's this one scene where, like, someone asks Marner if uh, if he's going to have the kid that he finds uh, christened, and he's like, I, I didn't know the children were baptized. So yeah, so maybe we're thinking Baptists. We know they don't follow written prayer, but improvise their own. And that could be a range of, of Protestant faiths, particularly in the kind of evangelical tradition. Clearly, whatever it is, they're dissenters. They, they reject the established Church of England. And relatedly, uh, and again, we will get into this, that they're a pretty proletarian community, which I think kind of goes hand in hand with the evangelicalism. But this is all before the main action of the novel, because while Marner is still part of Lantern Yard, his good friend frames him for robbery. <laughs> so. but, but won't God save him, Trent? No, <laughs> shockingly, God won't, which is, uh, yeah, that which is a comes as quite a surprise to him. Um, and that's one of the main sort of like uh, crises of the novel. But yeah, so basically what's happened, Marner and, and this friend of his had been nursing an elderly deacon who he's sick. Uh, so they're, they're staying with the guy all day and all night. 
Marner's friend is supposed to take over for him in the night. Um, he doesn't. And when Marner wakes up in the morning, church money has been stolen from the guy's bedroom and Marner's pocket knife is found where the money should be, which is a, I mean, if you're going to frame someone, right? Like that's, that's the way to do it. Like no, 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 no room for cops to overlook anything. You want to make sure you, you leave the calling card right there. Like maybe even a little note, like that says Silas Marner took this. Right? Yes. Also, he, he called in sick from watching the deacon before <laughs> yes. he did it yeah yeah exactly yeah right. it was the perfect crime yeah totally yeah so uh well also so one thing we learned around this is that that marner has uh, cataleptic fits where he just goes blank for extended periods of time um and that is important in a couple uh key scenes of the novel and so we suspect, uh, or, and Marner suspects that the friend took the money during one of these times when Marner just kind of is bla- you know, blacked out and placed the pocket knife there in a the very like crime genius style. Um, but in any case, the Lantern Yard brethren, who by their own doctrine won't involve civil authorities, and you know, hey, fucking ACAB, right, man? <laughs> Lantern Yard. Uh, yeah. L- Lantern Yard. Yeah. We're, we're simpatico with them, at least on one point. They cast lots to determine Marner's guilt or innocence, and the lots say that he's guilty, which which totally shatters him. His fiance breaks up with him, and, and Marner leaves the city in disgust. At the end of the trial, he tells his friend, you stole the money and you have woven a plot to lay the sin at my door, but you may prosper for all that. There is no just God that governs the earth righteously, but a God of lies that bears witness against the innocent, which is like, damn. Like, I mean, you know, this is, if, this were, if, if these were like 17th century Puritans rather than like 19th century Puritans, this is, I mean, we're about to do a witch trial at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah, I mean. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, yeah, so that he, and he, yeah, for, for the next 15 years, he won't, he will never dark in a church door again no he will be weaving himself <laughs> i was trying to do a pun with the lots and i yeah. lost it so yeah what i feel like weavy i was kind of racking my head like there, there's got to be some biblical association with weaving right but i i'm honestly what i was mainly coming up with was uh who's the mythic is it arachne it's arachne yeah right? that is, that's yes. constantly weaving. yeah but 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 i didn't which i i don't know i felt like that that might have some kind of resonance, but I, I also didn't quite know what to do with it. So I, I left it alone. <laughs> <laughs> Not uh, me. So yeah, Marner flees a ways to the South to this little village called Raveloe in Warwickshire, um, which is where Elliot was from where she grew up. And for 15 years, the village folk just think he's creepy as all hell. So for one thing, they don't have a lot of weavers in the area. So his loom and the sounds it makes just have like this occult resonance with them. It looks like click clack. Oh, like, oh, spooky. <laughs> like, <what the> fuck, <laughs> right? Only witches have iPhones. Yeah, yeah, right. Which yes, exactly. Marner knows a lot about medicinal herbs, which his mom had taught him from. But the Ravalo rubes are like, no, this dude is 150% a wizard. Uh, <laughs> Gandalf. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And this idea that Marner is an ultimate outsider in religious terms is actually one he kind of shares. Um, so, so Elliot really hammers on the superstition of the village, like it's this backwater, it's outside of modern networks of commerce and the exchange of knowledge, like news doesn't penetrate there in the same way it would in one of the emerging industrial centers or even a village that's kind of like, you know, I, like on a major turnpike or highway or whatever. But Marner himself has this view of religion that the novel describes as being 
being like three civilizational stages behind where Britain as a whole is supposed to be like, so, you know, in the kind of Whig progressive history narrative, it's, you know, very Scottish enlightenment shit right now. But this is a quote directly from the novel. There were no lips in uh, Ravelot from which a word could fall that would stir Silas Marner's benumbed faith to a sense of pain. In the early ages of the world, we know, it was believed that each territory was inhabited and ruled by its own divinities so that a man could cross the bordering heights and be out of the reach of his native gods, whose presence was confined to the streams and groves and the hills among which he had lived from birth. And poor Silas was vaguely conscious of something not unlike the feeling of primitive men when they fled thus in fear or in sullenness from the face of an unpropitious deity. But yeah, there's a lot there to unpack, I think. Yeah, a lot there to unpack. The most striking thing for me, at least initially, is that he is very much the primitive in that quote unquote way. Because he has that, he has this relation to God where he's like the the lots prove something to him about God, like they prove that he's a God on a throne of lies. Whereas you'd think that anybody of his faith that was even slightly more sophisticated would do those like make it up so God doesn't look bad excuses where it's like God's testing me or maybe in my heart I did steal it in my heart and not actually and my the, my heart left the pocket knife there. Right, yeah, and the whole the Scottish church like, well, honestly, Puritanism, right? Like, like grace alone will save you, right? Like that, that um, like what material wealth or you may or may not have in the world, like, or even like the works you do yourself, they don't really tell you that. They might, like you can kind of interpret them but there's a lot of interpretive work that has to happen and yeah you're right he just doesn't seem to have that at all no i mean there's none of that he isn't uh he's a guy who wants proof and and he just thinks he's got it and in that way he's completely straightforward but also how can one have faith if anything bad happens to you then <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah yeah well yeah and, and well it's interesting too that like in whatever sect that he is a follower of there does this idea of casting lots there does seem to be this this belief that they have that god will sort of like intercede to like directly reveal the truth but yeah in some ways this feels almost okay this is almost a throwback to like celtic times but also like silas martyrs often talked about as being like mythic i was thinking of greek myths we're like, yeah, I mean, there is this very kind of human sense of the gods who like are extremely fickle. They act like people who are the biggest assholes that you've ever met, right? Like, and- yeah, yeah, it's like that. That is the thing, right? It's like because Silas Marner's just pissed at God. He's just like, I think you're real and fuck you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, so it's it's straight. Yeah, it's it's very strange. It's very strange. We'll talk a bit more about religion, uh, in, 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 well, throughout, but in, in a little while specifically. So he has no friends or family here in Ravelot because, again, everyone's convinced that he's fucking Gandalf or something. <laughs> um, so what he does is he just sets up weaving in his cottage and hoarding the gold he makes. Uh, like he found, I think it's a it was a stonecutter's cottage. So there's this quarry with a big set open pond behind him, which that that will become important. We'll get to that. That's a plot quarry. It's a plot quarry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, d- don't don't go diving in quarries, by the way, kid. It's very dangerous. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, no, it is. It's people fucking die. There's things all the time because a combination of like all the shit that's down there. But also it's uh, they're extremely cold because they're so deep. So, yeah, it's just bad news. Yeah. But 
It's fun though. Don't. <laughs> Some of them are safe. Just you know, don't 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 find one that's uh, that that doesn't it isn't marked for swimming or whatever. I'm yeah. a dad and I can say that kind of shit now. Don't uh, have fun. Don't go. Don't climb the tower. Don't go into the abandoned house. Don't do any of it. If there is one thing I think we believe on this show is to not have <laughs> not have fun. Right? Yeah. Stay stay in and crack a good book. I mean, I'm an indoor kid. I always I always was, you know, but. Anyway, yeah. So according to Elliot, uh, the, the hoarding, right? Like that he's be piling up gold is like a breakdown of economic and social relations. I don't entirely buy this because I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's very working class. I mean, he's got it in some way to sort of protect himself here, but I understand what the novel's saying. Marner, he doesn't really need the extra money per se. Like he lives alone. He has very few expenses. So he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't uh, have a great reason to be acquiring all, all of this, but he views it as both the end in and of itself of his labor and also the goal becomes sort of his de facto friend in a way that's very kind of creepy and also sad in, in a lot of ways oh uh, yeah it's like a doll almost yeah it's pretty he likes to like it's it's aesthetic like that's his relation to it is is that and he just likes to kind of pet it yeah, just kind of get take it out and look at it. Yeah, and, and, and at nighttime when he's making his dinner, he like piles it on the table and just recounts it and looks at it. And this is a quote specifically about that. He began to think the money was conscious of him as his loom was, and he would on no account have exchanged those coins, which had become his familiars, which is an interesting word, for other coins with unknown faces. He handled them, he counted them till their form and color were like the satisfaction of a thirst to him. But it was only in the night when his work was done that he drew them out to enjoy their companionship. Yeah, like you're saying. Like, yeah, like just kind of petting them and looking at looking at they're so shiny on this table or whatever. I didn't pick that I should have, because that's a banger of a quote. It's actually incredible. Like he's enchant he he's enchanted the coins. Yeah, exactly. Well, right. That that yeah, that they're that they're his uh, that they're his familiars, right? It also like we're told that the guinea is his is his favorite coin, uh, which was a gold coin. It was, it was worth it, uh, slightly more than a pound. It's a, a word you see a lot in 18th century literature. I think it was worth uh, 21 shillings. And yeah, it's the guinea. I think it was it was minted between the 17th and the early 19th century. And it's called the guinea coin because it was like gold from that was taken from Africa. So it's like it, there, there's this interesting kind of colonial background to it, which I mean, I, I assume Elliot must have been conscious of. Um, and also the guinea was no longer. Uh, minted when this was written so that that is one way in which it's historicized but i did i did uh kind of wonder as i was reading if this wasn't like another way in which as insular as ravelo seems and as hyper insular as his cottage seems even so we're still in this kind of backdrop of sort of modern economic and even sort of modern colonial relations yeah and it bumps up exactly against this thing where it's like he doesn't like the coins that are worth the most yeah doesn't factor in whatsoever but at the same time you're at this the system that's totally rapacious and devouring in a completely different way is coming to the fore yeah exactly so i yeah right and, and it's like that's not that's not anything the novel says directly but well it's certainly part of the historical backdrop yeah i, I kind of want to sort of play with that and, and think that like how or at least how that sort of enters into the what the novel is saying about sort of modern developments and sort of economic relations for sure but uh, yeah, anyway, so we'll, we'll come back to Marner in just a minute because we have a side plot here, one that becomes the main plot. So the hot shits in Ravelo are this moderately rich dude named Squire Cass, that f famous 18th century title for the local dipshit gentleman, and his stable <laughs> of fail sons. So, so 
really does. If you think back to Rob Roy and the Osbaldistones of Osbaldistone Hall, but somehow the cast boys are even dumber and at least in one case drunker somehow. Yeah, like more credulous, less, both more and less ethically ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I'd like, you know, so like, like Rashley's the supervillain and uh, Rashley Osbaldistone and, uh, and Thorncliffe is the fucking chud that we all laugh at. Like none of, they're not funny or like particularly good at being villains or anything else. Just like, yeah, I mean, they're, they're failed sons through and through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... So Godfrey is the eldest and he is, we're supposed to think that he wants to be a nice guy. Like he really does, but he's massively in debt and he has this super secret marriage to a barmaid who he's, who's addicted to opium and with whom he has a child. And because of all this, he's embezzling money from dad and Godfrey has to keep the marriage secret because one, his dad, Squire Cass will 100% disown him if he finds out. And two, Godfrey is in love with Nancy Lameter, who uh, a local local woman who is hot and also sort of rich and extremely boring, thus fitting her to be the spouse of a boring dipshit squire in a 19th century novel. Yeah, Nancy got n- I got nothing off Nancy. I was trying to get some spark from Nancy. No, uh, yeah. I was trying to be into Nancy. I was trying to feel it. And I, <laughs> I swipe left on Nancy. I cannot tolerate her. It, like she's described several times, like her lips being like really kind of thin, which uh, the sense I was getting is just this like this like kind of perpetual expression of like no no one is living up to the expectations of what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> she's just like just vaguely unpleasant, but also morally upright, and this that's a worse combination. Oh, it's horrible. Have, yeah. Because you're you're duty bound to accept that they're decent, but you also just can't help but being like, fucking Nancy, just stop her. Yeah, and, and when she's got this sister too, who is a hell of a lot funnier because her sister and her sister just rolls with it. Like Nancy's got this thing that she always wants them to dress alike, and her sister's like, that's stupid, but you like doing it, so whatever. <laughs> you know. But, anyway, yeah. Um, oh yeah, Nancy was. Isn't there She's, this one where she rolls it and she says to like these these other women, "It's like, oh, fortunately, we're not uh, attractive enough for anyone to bother us." Like, what the fuck? And I'm like, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's She's yeah, like it's, we're all the knots. What's up, ladies? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, then, and then the sisters like, "You picked an uggo. You picked an uggo dress on purpose, didn't you?" Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Uh, her sister's just a hell of a lot funnier and, and more of a character, frankly, but um, but anyway, so yeah, so that so he wants to marry Nancy, and he can't because he's super secret married, and, and also he owes a lot of money. So to recoup at least some of the money, Godfrey concocts this dumbass plan with his even dumber brother Dunstan, or Duncey, Duncey Cass, one of the great fail-son names of, of literature. Godfrey hates Duncey, and for one thing, Duncey is also blackmailing Godfrey, like, oh, you better you better pay up or I'll tell dad that you're secret married. Um, <laughs> but, so funny to just hear you say their names because it's just like evil dipshit feuding brothers, like the platonic ideal. Yeah, it's of course, amazing. It's Godfrey Duncey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's amazing. And so like Duncey is going to sell Godfrey's fancy hunting horse, which I think is called. Yeah, he is. Like, Spark plug, no wildfire, wildfire. <laughs> I bet that'll go great. Tell oh, us yeah. how it. Tell us what happens. Does it sound like it'll go great? Well, I, 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 I'm sorry to puncture the, that that idea. 
Because on the way to go do this, Dudsey is drunk while fox hunting, which is always a bad <laughs> idea, as is fox hunting. Like, don't, wow. don't, don't do either. Adopt, don't I mean, shop. Drink as much as you want, but just, you know, not if you're going to go fox hunting and also don't do that. But so Dudsey has the horse jump something stupid and he kills the horse. <laughs> The way I'm picturing it is he, like, the horse got, like, skewered, basically. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The horse gets, like, impaled, like, as it's as, yeah. it's, as it's jumping this obstacle. So, uh, on the way home, Dunsey comes, he's walking the home. The virgin suicides horse. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, on the way home, Dunsey comes across Silas Marner's cottage, and he remembers, like, oh, yeah, right, the old wizard is rumored to have this hoard of gold, and the, and, and Dunsey thinks he's, he's I'm going to bully him into to loaning it to, to my brother and me, and then we just won't pay him back. But Marner's running an errand and isn't there, and so Dunsey finds the gold, steals it, and then disappears off the face of the earth, not to be heard from again in, like, 100 pages. So funny. Yeah, it, yes, it's it's amazing. He, I, I, I love Dunce, even though we're supposed to hate him. Just an amazing, unintentionally con. Well, no, I, I mean intentionally, but like he does not intend to be funny. He just is. Yeah. Well, and also, I kept expecting Dunce around every corner on every page. Okay. I'm wondering where's Dunce? When's he coming back? I know. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I mean, we don't do spoiler alerts on the show because, but encountering this myself was was it, it actually was kind of a surprise. I was like, oh, that was kind of cool that I didn't know that this was what was coming but we'll, we'll get there so marner is understandably devastated by the loss of of his his gold but this event also radically changes the townspeople's perception of him like he's no longer perceived as scary anymore now he's an object of pity and maybe even like a bit saintly or something like that the wizard thing starts to flip in entirely the opposite direction and like that perception is about to get really amped up because holy shit a baby appears at his door one snowy night and marner decides to adopt her like he just he like the parents like oh well the parish will take care of her he's like no she's mine the kid's mother is found dead outside in a snowbank, like she dies of an opium overdose. And what had happened was that so the, the mom is Godfrey's abandoned wife, and she was planning to show up at Squire Cass's big New Year's Eve party with the kid and uh, you know, cause a huge, you know, scene and make and basically make Godfrey own their marriage. So Godfrey, when he, you know, because Godfrey goes out to, you know, when when uh, Marner shows up holding the kid and he's like, oh, there's this woman who died at my door. And so Godfrey goes out and he he see, you know, he sees he's like, OK, all right, this is my kid. And that's what the fuck happened. And Jesus Christ. Well, that plot, though, the other thing is like that's straight out of like Dynasty. She like yeah. thought that up. Like, I'm going to go in and boy, will Blake Carrington really be sorry now when I crash the big party? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, right. No, it, I mean, it is it is a very I mean, the Victorian period is kind of the height of, of melodrama as a form. Um, and and it, it it definitely pulls from melodrama a lot, even though I don't think that I would describe this novel or really Elliot more broadly as as, mel as a melodramatic writer. Yeah, no, that's why that moment I was just like, what are you like? Are you a real housewife? Like what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like crash the party. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been a spectacular scene had she actually shown up. But yeah, so so now Godfrey is free to marry Nancy, but he is very guilty and sad about it. TM. Okay, so here's the here's how the novel ends. So we fast forward 15 years for some reason. Uh, I guess yeah. nothing happened. Like yeah, there. what? 
just all of a sudden, no, nothing. Just 15 years later, bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, and I, but I do think that that probably does go to the sense of like how this novels or how the 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 village sits in the historical landscape. In that, like, yeah, not much does happen there, even though we get the sense a lot happens around it, right? So we, we fast forward 15 years. Uh, Epi, the, chi- the child's name, he, uh, she's named after Marner's mother, Hepzibah, which is this very obscure biblical name. I think it's like the Book of Kings or something like that. Yeah, uh, Hawthorne uses it too. Oh, does he? Okay. Like famously, yeah. That makes sense. I, w- I wonder if, if I wonder if because uh, uh, Hawthorne is slightly before Elliot. Uh, I wonder if he, uh, she, yeah, I wonder if she actually was invoking Hawthorne as well or not. Well, interesting. Yeah, but but yeah, so Hawthorne, the, another another writer of, uh, you know, dealt with Puritans all the time, also also liked this name. But yeah, and so like definitely resonances of, of Marner's old evangelicalism hanging around. Yeah, the stories are like very similar. Yeah. Sorry, I've just had a Hawthorne moment that she may have been actually, I don't, there, there may be some relationship between these two, but I don't know because it's, it's like weirdly resonant. That's that's fascinating because yeah I I was reading because I was reading the word like Michael the Michael poem and and, and Lucy Gray which was another thing Elliot definitely was reading Lucy Gray's about a child who disappears into a snowstorm but yeah no the now now I really want to follow up on the Hawthorne it's House of the Seven Gables we should do it we should do it sometime but it's the sister who of her brother is imprisoned for like for like fifteen or twenty years or something, and then he's released, and it's the story of what happens after. Yeah, let's do. It. Yeah, and I, I fucking, I, it's been a long time, but I love the House of the Seven Gables, so let's, you know, let, let's do it. Let's do it. But so Hepzibah, you know, Epi, uh, she's eighteen now. Marner and she are extremely happy living the bucolic peasant life. It's like a fucking John Constable painting that they live in now, basically. Marner has started going back to church on her account, and Elliot tells us he basically thinks his gold was transformed by some divine miracle into Epi. But no, we're about to find out what happened to the gold. Duncey turns back up, or rather his skeleton, his fucking carcass. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're draining that quarry pond behind Marner's house. And what happened was 15 years ago, Duncey, it was, it was a foggy night. Duncey, again, drunk off his ass, and he fell into the pond and drowned, weighted down with the gold, which I'm sure is something that happens in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> Highly metaphorical. Yeah, exactly. So Godfrey feels extra bad now, like because they know it was Dudsey. Like it, it's he's got it. Dudsey has has Godfrey's whip, which has Godfrey Cass written <laughs> on it. <laughs> Like when I was a kid, I remember uh, my mom wrote my name on my baseball glove <laughs> when I took it to school. <laughs> so it's re- real like seven year old shit. Yeah. <laughs> sewed your name in your underpants <laughs> exactly yes so, yeah, so put my were... name on my gold handled whip <laughs> exactly yeah so ed godfrey yeah he feels extra bad now he confesses everything to nancy who is like even though we haven't been able to have children and i said god didn't want us to adopt children that was that was the sign from god that we couldn't have any we should I'm nancy, adopt. i know yes i'm nancy i know yes uh <laughs> we should adopt epi and so yeah there's this whole thing like that nancy has this 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 drawer full of kids clothes that she made and then they ended up not being able to have children it's it's very it's very sad yeah that no it it is it is that part is certainly sad their solution to it is bizarre and yes and, and yes inside yes absurd. psychotic yes exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> so godfrey and 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 nancy show up at, at marner's cottage and it's like oh congratulations we're here to adopt your 18 year old daughter uh, adopted daughter but epi is having none of it 
Uh, she said, I, I can't feel as I've got any father but one, said Epi impetuously while the tears gathered. I've always thought of a little home where he'd sit in the corner and I should fend and do everything for him. I can't think of no other home. I wasn't brought up to be a lady and I can't turn my mind to it. I like the working folks and their victuals and their ways. Fucking A. Good, good, good for Epi. <laughs> and she ended passionately while the tears fell. I'm promised to marry a working man as will live with father and help me to take care of him. And so Godfrey is like, Hey, at least let me pay for the wedding and, you know, presumably send money sometime. Epi marries Aaron Winthrop, who's the wheelwright's son. Uh, and damned if we don't all live happily ever after in that fucking John Constable painting the end. We do. We love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're very nice. And they have a very nice ending of the story. Yeah, they do. The, the sort of rural working class peasantry really kind of transformed into this kind of like bucolic, like ultra kind of conservative fantasy of what that looks like. Although, you know, as we'll kind of get into with the economic background, I think the novel sort of knows that fantastic quality. Like, I don't think it's actually positive that like, yeah, this is real. I think it's well, no, I mean, I, I don't want to I, I don't want to go far too far down that path because there is a tension here between like a sort of 19th century realism and an attempt to produce the mythic in some way. Like I, you know, it, it's I like, I've not encountered that many stories that are quite like that, that I do think are like quite realist, but also like very emphatically not realist at the same, almost at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is that everything, since you've said the plot, there are all of these course, like perfect correspondences the missing brother gets found in the end. The gold, mm -hmm. the gold came from I don't know, or the gold went I don't know where, and this child came from I don't know where. Right. Like all of these perfect, perfect correspondences, with the exception of the fact that when he goes back to his hometown, he finds the old church no longer there. Yes. And that's the only thing. Everything in this in this ties up like perfectly neatly. In yeah. a way, even though it unfolds through all these like coincidences or whatever, there's the that one thing you can't you can't shoehorn in. Like you can actually fit everything in this perfectly into a, a morality tale. Yeah, well, that right, and and uh, that what you just mentioned was the one plot point I didn't, um, which is a fairly brief one, but I think an important one. That like, yeah, he goes, uh, Silas and 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 Epi go to the town he's from, you know, Manchester, and because basically, like, he, you know, so after Marner started going back to church, which is a you know an Anglican church, it's not an evangelical church in Ravelo, uh, but he he has this uh, the the wheelwright's uh, wife Dolly he becomes very good friends with and she, you know, and well, it, yeah, another interesting thing about religion in this is that, the, you know, even like, so he's an evangelical Christian, she's Anglican. They're neither one of them are really sure that they belong to the same religion. And I don't mean that like, they are like, Oh, well, are they, we the same kind of Christian? It's like, no, they kind of don't even see like, it's like, I don't know. Which again gets to like a very like their 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 understanding of sort of like theological difference is not um it's fairly limited. Yeah, well, because si Silas Marner is incredibly biblically literate, incredibly. He's confident about it. Even yeah. many years later, he's like, no. Dolly says about uh, christening the child Hepzibah. I don't know about that. And he's like, no, it's a Bible name. That yeah. comes from the Bible. And she's like, really? Yeah. And, and so yeah, she, she thinks it's like a, a devil name at first or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the drawing lots. She thinks that that is like a satanic way to determine someone's guilt. And he says, no, they draw lots in the Bible. And she says, are you sure? He says, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So she is the one who just appears not to have cracked it open. And for her, it's like this community tradition thing. For him, yeah, it's and, like and that. I, that's a that does get to a, a, an important sort of theological difference between sort of descending and, and Puritan uh, traditions and like Anglicanism. Like, so Anglicanism is not quite as oh, you don't need to read the Bible as say like Catholicism is where it, that is the clergy's job largely is to sort of do the interpretation. But I mean, Anglicanism is close enough to that. Like, I have to say, <laughs> Anglicans don't spend a lot of time being like, well, if you cite you look at Deuteronomy, you'll find you know, it's like. <laughs> Not peeping peeping Deuteronomy that often. No, but she's like, are you sure we have the same Bible? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. The, so she she should by rights know like she has a Bible. Yeah. One would imagine she would know it, but but one actually wouldn't imagine that, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. But sorry, we that this is a little bit um uh, a, a different sort of point, but I think an important one. But but what you had said was like, yeah, they, he goes back to to Manchester basically because Dolly's like, oh well, you know, you should you should ask like the your the preacher there, like why you know why did God let the lot say that if if you weren't you know because you know you weren't guilty, and he's like, yeah, I will, and then he goes back, and yeah, the church is gone, right? So you're right, it's like there is this important ontological question that cannot be resolved in this you know on the surface very very stable and sort of happy fantasy of like everyone is restored to some kind of like a symbiosis or some kind of like uh, a happy relation with their community and with their family and, and each other. Yeah. And, and if they're not like you close the loop on them, like the dead guy, the missing guy is not missing still, yeah. but the mystery yeah. of the lots is a durable mystery because you can never penetrate it. But he never thinks He's a real Puritan. Like it never occurs to him to ask. Yeah. He, it's because it's between him and God. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He, he's, a pure, he's a Puritan in that sense, but not in the sense that like he assumes that this is a test that God has set for him. He's like, well, fuck God. Then. <laughs> right? so, he, yeah. He's just like a Puritan who's never had any other, like he, he never had another guy to give him ideas about stuff. Like Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So I, I do, uh, I'll, I'll um, share a little bit of context now and, uh, you know, more on the religion, which we'll, we'll you know, I'm sure we, we can expand on that. Um, but I also really want to talk about some of the economic themes here um, and, and those sort of uh, set of relations. But first, I'll say a bit about Eliot, George Eliot, who was, of course, a uh, hugely influential Victorian novelist and very much during her career. Like, I mean, she's a big deal now. She was a huge deal then as well. Eliot, of course, is a pet name. So she she was born Mary Ann Evans in Warwickshire, uh, which, again, in, in the English Midlands, where Marner, Silas Marner sat. So she adopted the pseudonym. Uh, it's fairly common practice among 19th century win- women writers like the Bronte sisters, for example, all wrote under a, a pseudonym. Which is striking because even though there, you know, were tons of women novelists and had been since the English novel got started in the nineteenth, or and sorry, started in the seventeenth century, there was still a dumbass panic about like professional women, like even kind of at this relatively late day. So that's where the George Eliot comes from. But, I'm George. I'm a man. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes, why? Why else would I be called George if I wasn't a man? Exactly. Yeah, explain my name being George, then, huh? <laughs> 
but what's somewhat different from like the Bronte sisters or like Austin who wrote anonymously during her life is that Elliot was, it was widely known that Elliot was Marianne Evans, uh, like during her life. So she published Adam Bede in 1859. It's hugely popular. Everyone asks you, Oh, who wrote this amazing novel? And, and Elliot's like, Oh, well, I guess I did that. If you're, <laughs> that's how you're going to talk about it. Did you like it? Exactly. Did you like that novel? Did you enjoy it? <laughs> So growing up, her dad was an agent, like a estate and property manager for some squire in their neighborhood. So the Evanses were definitely kind of rural PMC. <laughs> when, uh, so when Ellie was still a girl, and this is interesting with regard to Silas Marner, she became an evangelical. But then in her early 20s, so we're talking about like the 1840s now, she meets this free thinker named Charles Bray. And Elliot is like, okay, that makes sense. I'm done with organized religion now. Bye. And, and really, like, never went back either. Nobody was looking for a reason to take church off of their calendar yeah, every week. For sure. For sure. And I mean, hey, I definitely feel her on that, you know. But yeah, so as an adult, she was an editor, essayist, poet, and most famously a novelist, of course. Uh, as I said, politically, you, you know, generally regarded as part of a wide tradition of 19th century re- liberalism. But also a free thinker, you know, even so she's not a political radical, she was kind of a free thinker and, and certainly not afraid of challenging contemporary mores. As a very prominent example, she was openly in a long-term romantic relationship with a philosopher named George Henry Lewis, who was already married, although separated from his wife. Um, like divorce at the time actually required an act of parliament, uh, which he he couldn't get he couldn't get. I thought the scandal was going to be with a philosopher. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that is far more scandalous than the fact that he was married, right? Apologies to our philosophy listeners. Roasting with love. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. But yeah, and hey, ad- anecdote about a Victorian shithead. Her brother Isaac uh, disowned Elliot due to the Lewis relationship. And then when Elliot got married after Lewis's death, uh, Isaac writes her like, congratulations. And I, I bet she was just fucking thrilled to receive that <laughs> letter. You know? uh, Someone should write a novel called The Victorian Shithead. Yeah, I I, I would read it. Yes. Um, and many Victorian shitheads wrote novels that are about that, even though they're not called that. <laughs> but, so she was born in 1819, died in 1880. So kind of saw most of the Victorian era and also British industrialization. Okay, so we've touched on both of these aspects, but I, I just wanted to expand a little bit on two big themes present in Silas Marner and in a lot of Eliot's fiction. One is religion, uh, which we've talked a bit about now. Uh, so again, Elliot, evangelical turned free thinker, and a big concern for her was belief, epistemology, and ontology in this modern era where theology no longer held the dominant position it once did and could serve as the sort of key to those to those uh, those ideas. There's a Felicia Bonaparte essay that I highly recommend if you're interested in this aspect. So in in Silas Marner, Bonaparte argues that Eliot is trying, quote, to conceive for herself and for the modern world a secular but a transcendent religion. So the idea is Silas Marner sees the modern world as too materialist. Uh, the novel, that is, sees the, the, the modern world as too materialist. But it also sees the world of traditional belief as too superstitious and rigid. And Bonaparte argues that Eliot is trying here to offer essentially a modern myth that addresses both of those deficiencies. Um, and this is quoting from Bonaparte. By turning religion into myth and myth into liber- literary symbols, 
she has found a way to translate theology into a secular text. So we're really thinking of a form of knowledge that captures the essence of religious belief, but without the dogma or superstitions or kind of anti-modernity of that. And a lot of people have commented on Silas Marner's mythic or biblical qualities, right? Like it's it's very symbol-heavy text, a lot of allegorical implications. Uh, Silas is a biblical name, like Silas accompanies St. Paul in, in evangelizing. Silas Mariner himself is often compared to Job, uh, and there are tons of other biblical allusions throughout the novel. Although, Katie, I, you and I had uh, been talking earlier, kind of said, like, the book of Job isn't a good comparison because he does not behave like Job-like at all in response to the challenge that God maybe has given to him, right? And Job, as, as I mentioned when we were talking, Job got put through not the bees, poured a potty down a hill, <laughs> sledgehammer to the face. And then all your friends are dead by. And Silas <laughs> Marner, it's quite poignant and sad when he loses the gold, but it's just not Job. It's We're not in the same. We're not in the Job ballpark where God is a, the clown from Saw. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. No, right. Yeah, I've got, yes, God in the book of Job is absolutely psychotic. And yeah, Marner, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, he. He actually, particularly once Epi arrives, seems to have a pretty happy life. And, and yeah, I mean, he's uh, the, the the owl eyes thing that you mentioned. He's very nearsighted, but that kind of goes with his like he's so intently like focused on the weaving aspect. So yeah, it's not it's not Job, but his response, I certainly I don't think Job like. Um, uh, so oh yeah, uh, just this is kind of interesting. Elliot like Elliot is working on a novel called Romola, which is this crazy historical novel about 16th century England that she was researching. Like I know Megan always says, like every big and important novelist has their one crazy historical novel. <laughs> yeah, um, unless you're Walter Scott, in which case that's like all of your novels are that. Every, everyone, <laughs> but um, but she like yeah, when she writes about starting Silas Marner, she there's this kind of sense like oh, I'm working on this cute concise fable to kind of take me away from all the boring ass research I'm doing. But then it just becomes very very complex, even though it's not a long novel. But Katie, I was kind of wondering like what you sort of make of Bonaparte's claim there, right? That it's like a it's like a secularized belief system that emerges here, but you know one that does a lot of what religious belief is is kind of supposed to do but like stripped of the bad or like really religiousy aspects of it i never understand why there's th- the secular religion thing to i get tripped up on because this is religion in silas marner it, it many different forms of it but i don't know how you can have religion for secular times that are out of time, that are yeah. placed out of time in a fantasy space. And I think also that religion is something that always is going to be modern and anti-modern. I know people have said uh, so much about religion and modernity, but it's always going to be present in some way if you, m- maybe in different forms. And And I think there's a kind of allergy to saying stuff like, spiritual or supernatural or something and to do that and to not do that you say something like secular religion yeah right but admittedly i don't know this full argument so i don't no that's fair right it kind of very brief snippet but but i mean i think I, i i share i share a lot of your um sort of questions i think about what that would mean so i guess like one thing that that would have to mean to me is 
a system of thinking that okay, so we're not we're not doing God, but we basically still arrive at a sense of the world that has some sort of like order and answers to it. And I actually think if you push at the themes of this novel, you don't really have that much of like what what is it? Well, I mean, okay, so we learn something like like the like the bonds of like kind of love and like family ties, which I mean, okay, that you know that's a that's an important theme. And, and we'll get into this in just a minute when we're talking about the economics. But I also kind of think that Ravelow is like it's it is marked as past and also marked as fable or fantasy in a way that I don't think it can really serve as that kind of systematizing like okay we've put the world in order by like pursuing the story it's also a place that he escapes to yes like yeah it's an escape from uh from what he perceives as a truth that he can't face so he so that's where he Mm goes so that's where he goes that isn't uh, yeah i i have a hard time i have a hard time placing exactly what that is but i Mm -hmm. don't I don't know how it works. Like, I don't know how the space really works Mm -hmm. because it feels like shit, man. You go out to Western Pennsylvania and like you blow through three Ravelos on your way. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there's another sort of significance of uh, like religion at this moment in the 19th century that I, you know, I'll, I'll mention, you know, briefly, and, and that will also take us to the kind of economic conversation that we wanted to have. So evangelical movements like Lantern Yard that Marner was once a member of. So like in the, throughout the 18th and 19th century, they are closely associated with a lot of working class and political radical movements in the 18th century. And this is something I know we talked about in like Joseph Andrews and some of the, the, the Puritan literature we've looked at. Methodism was really attractive to women and, and, and the poor and to racial minorities pre- precisely because in Methodism, there is this, there you know, is was this direct, uh, this belief in direct communication between the individual and God, and a lot of other kind of you know faith traditions, right? And Protestantism have that as well, right? That but like that anyone can testify essentially. Yes, and church membership wasn't it wasn't essential in the same way. It, right, exactly. And so I think, you know, in that, you, like, you can see the reason there why so many radicals and reformers, including abolitionists, very famously, were Methodists or other dissenters, um, you know, again, groups dissenting from the established Church of England. In the mid 19th century, the Chartist movement, which was really based in the Midlands where, where Silas Marner sat uh, and, and fought for things like universal manhood suffrage uh, and, and things like higher wages. They're called the Chartists because there's, there's the People's Charter, basically, that laid out all these goals of, of the movement. They had a lot of roots in evangelicalism and at the same time were strongly opposed by rich Anglicans, like kind of the Tories and the the the, the rich uh, liberal party members of Victorian England. So I just kind of want to keep that in mind too, like when we think about Marner, because like, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me there is like, I think Marner is very not politically conscious as a protagonist, but like he is out of this community that I think would have very much signaled maybe some of those connections to readers at the time. And like, yeah, like the fact that he moves from this big industrial city to this like village that feels very kind of out of the stream of history. I I don't know. I mean, I just, I like, in addition to like whatever the theology is that's being worked out, I just, I have to think that would have been on readers' minds and was almost certainly on Elliot's mind, like what the background is here. Even though like we, like, yeah, I mean, there's not much in the way of like direct political statement from like Silas Marner or even ways of thinking of him as like emblematizing the plate of the working class at the time or whatever you know 
No, what's interesting about him is that he always has all of his needs supplied. You know this because not only does he live very sparely, but by the end of the novel, the entire town is responsible for him in a way that takes him out of economy in the way that we think of it largely, like almost totally. He still... He still weaves and makes, I mean, I know that he does it less, right? As you said, because there's less hand weaving happening, but he lives outside of it. He weaves because he has the giant eyes of a weaver. He's just somehow essentially in the, as a character, he's just like, you know how in Dickens novels, like the guy who's shaped like a box winds up in a box. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's that type of it's that type of thing in the weaving and the untangling of mystery and things like that. It's just like it's pure, like all this stuff you want to say has all these resonances that are very much contemporary and real real world. And I think that's totally right. And then there are also these other things that make them not that at the same time, which is what's so cool about this book but also so like makes it makes it hard to think about almost yeah definitely well and that 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 brings us to the last the sort of last thing i wanted to lay out but i i like specifically when you were made the very good point about how like the the whole kind of community becomes sort of responsible for the aging silas marner at the end like that that, i wonder if that's almost like a sort of like a traditionalist uh even when we think like kind of like small c conservative response to like the recognition of like some kind of big social upheavals that are happening but so i'll so just kind of on that the economic valence here um so yeah like weaving and more broadly the textile industry of britain yeah it's definitely in the background of the novel so you know as i said earlier like the novel spans this important transition point in textile production where we're going from independent artisans in a cottage industry like silas marner to a regime of industry and the power loom giant factories coal smoke everywhere <laughs> big big polluted cities like yeah when they go back to manchester and epi pronounces it a dark ugly place that hides the sky like that definitely like that no, so now we're in a in a turner painting right where we're seeing like the the, the ominous like smoke clouds that are enveloping the <laughs> landscape right but yeah and and also like so the new regime it's definitely capitalist like not the uh, you know the capitalist class and not the independent worker now has all the power uh marx writes a ton about this in capital and how mechanization worked to produce these sort of hellish conditions in order to squeeze every last bit of surplus uh, value um and yeah like katie you were saying too that the novel references that directly but fleetingly in part two where we're told marner is living on an increasingly thin uh, margin because there was less and less flax spun is, is the quote um which is true it just was not you know it wasn't uh, being done in cottages that way anymore it was being done in the big cities so since Elliot is big lib, uh, again, my perpetual <laughs> frustration with Dickens, she doesn't really do much by way of critique directly with that. But like the novel clearly like registers that and, and it has that in the background of what it's talking about. And so just very quickly, so there's this landmark study by Mary Poovey called Genres of the Credit Economy, where Poovey argues that in Epi appearing in the place of lost gold, which didn't really signify much at all, it's kind of this this symbol that doesn't, it's like, okay, but what the fuck does it mean when it's just sitting on Silas Marner's table? 
that Marner allegorizes a concept of value in non-financial terms. Like, so we're, we're trying to be like humanistic rather than kind of vulgarly materialist, which I also think overlaps uh, a bit with uh, Deidre Lynch's arguments that we've talked about a few times on the show that like the 19th century novels really kind of obsessed with working through and positing different forms of value and, and, and maybe kind of like non-financial forms of value that, you know, like that, that readership has that an author has that literature has, uh, but precisely as a result of anxieties about the marketplace and the kind of new hegemony of capital and financialization. Having said that, I do wonder then if, yeah, it's like it's trying to like insist on a place for what it perceives to be the kind of historical and traditional relations of village life that is a kind of like localized community of sort of mutual care that is set apart from the big sort of like capitalist hegemony. But I I think also maybe skeptical at the same time, like it knows that like, like it wants to say that like, this is a world in which we could deal with that kind of stuff through this sort of like network of care. But at the same time, could we get back there? This place kind of exists out of time and out of history necessarily in some way, or it would collapse. Yeah. Like what's everybody doing? Yeah. Like what's everybody up to in town? Yeah, I I ne- I'm not quite clear on it. Like we have our four guys that we're following, and we know he's weaving. The squire's the landlord, but then it's, it's not the squire. There's no squire anymore at the yeah. end. Yeah. Like what is happening? Everything's dissolving, but yet it's all coming together around Silas Marner. Like what? Yeah, yeah. It it does feel like the end of melancholia when the planet just crashes into the 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 weird planet crashes into the earth and like it's just like that weird unearthly end of the world feeling at the end of the novel because you know that they blink out and disappear yeah i mean i don't want to insist too much on this because i think like the implication is somewhat muted, but I think it is present, right? Like when they go to Manchester or, you know, I, I, I keep calling it Manchester. Yeah. It's not named, you know, and, and it's like, oh my God, this place is so oppressive and they've torn down like the old church and stuff. This sense that like, okay, that's happening. And like, and, and yeah, like Silas doesn't have the same amount of weaving he did that like, those pressures are seeping their way into Ravelo. So it's like aware of that, but at the same time also works to keep it at bay in, in some way. But then there are other, Katie, you, you mentioned how like the squire is no longer called the squire. Yeah. The first page of the second part says specifically that squirearchy is now dead. It says <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Godfrey Cass, any higher title has died away from Ravelo lips since the old squire was gathered to his father's and his inheritance was divided. Class relations are changing in Ravelo, and I mean, it's not like Squire Cass was a good like. It's it's he had a pretty. I mean, he was a fucking idiot, and he also had this like kind of oppressive uh, uh, social significance. So it's not like we mourn that, but I think at the same yeah. way, like we do are seeing like sort of an evolution of class relations unfolding. That like, okay, so we like that there's not a squire anymore. But do we want factories popping up here? No, we don't. But like, how do you know? Like, how do we manage that kind of historical change that is in in the process of becoming? You know. Yeah, and that's the thing is that the squire being gone or not, like, what you'd want is essentially this exact thing and only this exact thing. Yeah, because that the squire like wasn't doing a whole lot anyway. He wasn't making the wheels of the town turn. Right. No. 
So to lose him doesn't leave a vacuum, but does like so it does and doesn't reorder everything because the his dipshit son who's Epi's bio dad, he like he says to all the part of my punishment is to all the whole world will think I have no children. Right. Right. So he almost consciously cuts off that future. The squire of the town is like that's done for several reasons. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And, and I think also historical change is, you know, can be simultaneously threatening and invigorating and uh, emboldening, right? Like that, that it, like some things that are getting swept aside, we're not going to mourn. Also, and like another thing that gets us swept aside here, right? It's like, I, as I was reading this, I was thinking like in an 18th century version of this novel, Epi's like, oh, you are the gentleman's daughter. That would have been, it's like, ah, yes. And now I, now I get to be a, like that. If we think of people like, you know, Fielding, right. There is that, or Fanny Burney too, right. Like Evelina is about, you know, it's, it's about a, uh, a, a, the foundling, the, the, the girl foundling. This idea that like, okay, like, so we're managing the sort of economic uh like the, the the felt turmoil of kind of economic flux by restoring traditional class relations but like in a better way right like so like so like you're you're a gentleman now because you actually have this like merit or it's it's not like this old aristocratic model it's like you are recognized as what you always should have been both by bloodline but also by like this you know that you've signaled yourself as virtuous in some way and and so that would have been the yeah. 18th century version. It's like, oh yes, now she is the lady. She's she's restored to what like yeah. she always sh- you know, should have been. And and you would have always known. It would have been a mystery that you always secretly knew instead of a th- instead of an open secret that is then like did not refused at the end. Yes, and, and 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 I think that it is very striking that the novel emphatically rejects that as a resolution. It's like, no, I'm not going to be a, one. You, no, you're not my father. Like you did nothing to raise me. This guy yeah. is my father. But also, I have no interest in being a lady. Like this is not this is not the life I, am, am, you know, am, uh, feel drawn to, want, or anything like that. Which, which also, like, okay, some things can't be repaired. Like you can't efface the like mm-hmm. eighteen years of a lack of relationship here. You know, the love bond is with Silas. It can't just then be like produced with this guy who just shows up. It's like, oh, I'm actually your dad. You know? Yeah, and no matter what he appeals to, like. That whole scene is very interesting, too, because he's really trying to get her to, like, respond to him in some way so that he can discharge his bad feelings of having abandoned his daughter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he, his last try is you owe a duty to your parent, like your quote unquote natural parent is what he says. And she's like... Nah, that's not going to work on me. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, buddy. Yeah. You got to go. Yeah. So, but then the, he leaves and as he's walking away with Nancy, it seems like they're sort of like that went okay. Yeah. It's just fine. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like that. Okay. So he did his duty by like offering, but now that it's nice, like, oh, all right. What, <laughs> well, yeah. But. Yeah, it's just a very fucked up and weird scene if you think about it in those terms because, oh, okay, so actually, yeah, he's trying to, like, balance the scales out yeah. and do something that's, like, a perfect exchange or, like, I'll, ma- I'll make up for it or set the account right. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't factor in – Silas is shitting a brick Yes, when yeah. he's 
he's come into the cottage and there's a says like that um Epi like put her hand on his back and because he's trembling. Yeah. And he constantly defers to his daughter about what she wants and all that. It's like this very emotional scene. And it's it's funny because that that guy is trying to make the one-to-one thing happen too. Like the I lost my gold, I got a daughter. Yeah. And eventually I'll get my gold back, but but that's like the trade for now. And he's trying to be like Okay, you got your I, I don't know if this works, but it's like, okay, you got your gold back, so I'm gonna take the daughter back. Yes, right. But that but that's not fungible. No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and right, and, and yeah, like Silas Silas, yeah, I mean he says repeatedly, like if, if basically if this happens, I will die, right? <laughs> like yeah. yeah. But but yeah, but it can't right, but that that it's not fungible. That 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 whatever exchange and like, yeah, and I mean I think that also, okay, yeah, so oh God, like transform the gold into happy. No, it's like, you know, that 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 has gone away as like an explanation. But but all and maybe also then that that exchangeability or whatever has has also disappeared in the in 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 the realness of like how affective bonds are actually produced or like the kind of affective bonds we want to value which are not bloodline related they're they're more like kind of like you know like sympathy and care and and affection related or something like that yeah and there's a there's all a lot of the language of of rights also like who has a right to a relationship basically yeah like who has a right to claim it and but also then who's earned it yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And what, yes. And I, I mean, I think this, this takes us back to, uh, both, both, uh, Lynch and, and Poovey's argument, like what, what earning would mean in that context, like that, that, yeah. that the economic in terms of like, you know, production and, and valuation and, and finance is, yeah, like that's the historical force that's, that's sweeping over everything, but that, and that is like very ominous in a lot of ways, but, um, like a different form of value the human form, right? Which is, I think that that's what, what Poovey says directly about this, this novel that, 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 and yeah. Okay. So, I mean, if this is like a myth that that's actually what we're at, like, right. That, 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 uh, uh, you know, a value system that knows that history is overtaking things in, in ways that are both like, you know, welcome and bad at the same time. But like what we're arriving at is, a, is, is a system of, of value, like what we value that is like insulated from that because it's not it's not economic in that way yeah no absolutely it's so interesting all of the slippage between what we value and then having good values you know which is which runs back the kind of strange conservatism of the text or like the the idealizing but also upsetting of older forms of of social life i don't know what to do with this town where they don't they don't have the dang news and <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> yeah no i yeah yeah well right and, and i think that like that that problem of not knowing what to do that is like that is the that is the fable or the fab fabulous aspect of it right that it's it is like we have to carve it out of history to make a space to like explore this fantasy when we throw it back into history, that's when we start to see all these forces that that I think we know we can't keep at bay, but like this enables us to like imagine a way out of at the same time. I think it's partially what's so like I sometimes do have secret regrets about not being a not being a a more 
transatlantic person when I had the chance. But um, that's what's so compelling about talking about the rise of new economic models and new, I guess a lot of it's financial instruments, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they always rest inside these spiritual economies that are going to feel bigger, but that depend totally on interpretation. Right. right. <laughs> but they're equal. They're equally as made up as credit, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. like yeah, you yeah. can't say that like God is less real than your FICO score. Right. Like You can't reasonably make that claim. No, 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 no. Exactly. Yeah. This book kind of blew my mind and my, my dick off. Like I don't, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, now I was kind of, I don't know, like uh, a little bit uh, dreaded because intimidated by, I think, Middle March. But yeah, now I'm, uh, well, ne- next season's going to be Pierre as a two parter. Yeah. And then, and then uh, th- which we're, yeah, we, we all, all three of us fucking love, uh, love Melville. And I'm looking forward to the polycule uh, <laughs> aspect <laughs> of it, uh, with incestuous polycule uh but but yeah oh, no so uh, middle march in the in the couple seasons so anyway thanks this was great uh you know we, we we miss we miss megan but she'll she'll be back with us next week um and yes. uh yeah so do we do we do we have are, are we going to do a game we have some parenting advice to to give Okay. A little parenting advice to give. Uh, we're going to do this together. Uh, I am not a parent, mm-hmm. but I feel very qualified to speak on all these matters. And, and I, I am a parent, uh, which probably doesn't <laughs> qualify me anymore to speak on these. <laughs> <laughs> but what got me thinking along these lines is that there's a scene in uh, Silas Marner where he like refuses to basically lock up epi in a closet like this lady's like you have to either you have to either beat her ass yes. or lock her in the dark closet yeah. and she's like totally undisturbed by this but silas marner is totally he's he is traumatized yes deeply yes yes but we have a lot of parents who have opinions about opinions about everything and questions and comments and one of these uh individuals is similar to the silas marner character in uh, recommending to a um, attachment parenting blog, uh, <laughs> biblical spanking. Oh, so we have God. a little exchange. Uh, so we have a little exchange. I'm just going to take you through just a little bit of it, just so you can get the flavor, and uh, then we can maybe respond to some some uh, some of the other questions because they're doozies. Uh-huh. Um, as a former La Leche League family and currently homeschooling. For the past five years and having associated with hundreds of Christian homeschooling families, I must respectfully disagree with anyone who chooses to exchange the wisdom of Holy Writ in favor of leaning on one's understanding. A biblical approach to child training, yes, banking, works. It must. Otherwise, God is a liar. (laughs) God, Jesus fucking Christ. Otherwise, God is a liar. Uh. I do fucking love when people invoke uh, religious doctrine to justify abuse. It's 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 the best, right? Yeah, it's uh really cool. It's neat. Yeah, it's yeah, good. We love yeah. it. Also, a way to throw about- God under the bus there too, right? Like <laughs> God's a liar. Yeah, yeah. If if I can't if I can't beat my children, God's, God's a liar. liar. Yeah, yeah. God told me I could do this. <laughs> yeah. it's fine. So the reply. I think we have gotten our replies down, basically, which is don't fucking touch, don't don't put your don't don't hit people. No, 
unless it's consensual, which we'll get to in the answer. But <laughs> yeah, right. don't hit, don't hit people. Yes, yes. They don't want to be hit. Yes, do not do not do not hit children. Yes, uh, yeah, yes, it, yes, do, yes. Not, not non consensual hitting generally is 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 not what what you should do. Um, and I don't you know I don't know. I mean I'm not I don't have a line to God there. I mean the fact that I'm a big heathen. Pinko might have something to do with it, but I, I don't, you know, I'm, I, I feel like God might be down with that, right? You know, I'm going to go ahead and say, oh, let me uh, pick up the phone. Uh, ring, ring, ring. Uh, oh, hi, God. Um, yeah, no, don't. Okay, don't, don't spank them then. Yeah. Don't. Oh, you, you do want us to spare the rod. Yeah. Okay. 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 Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you. Bye bye. Cool. All right. We got new information. And <laughs> so that's what you can follow. Yeah. That's, that's what you can follow. But, um, the response from the attachment parenting blog is that um, if you do, I suggest you do an internet search for spanking. <laughs> oh, okay. I, yes, I, I'm sure that that will, <laughs> will turn up exactly what you're looking for. You will find a multitude of websites devoted to spanking fetishes and other bizarre sexual dysfunctions. <laughs> okay, Okay, lady. Okay, lady. Calm down. Bizarre. Yes, Those- that, that's cool. Yes, let's 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 do a a fucking nineteenth century pathologization of kink. Not abusing children is like an entirely different thing than consensual practices between adults. Yes, like literally. Be an adult baby who doesn't hit children. Yes, I ex- don't care. Yes, exactly, exactly. Oh my god. Like whatever. Um, I have a question for you as a parent, though. Yes. This is this comes up. Is is a crying child manipulating the parent? Well, okay. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it, is, it is important to know that children are sociopaths up until the point where they start to develop, like you know, an actual like kind of conscious awareness of, of other people. Are they manipulating? I mean, they're very like solipsistic and self directed. <laughs> But at the same time, it's like, do they have control over their emotion? No, that's why they cry all the time. They ha- their brains do not have command of their emotions <laughs> yet. So, like, I mean, uh, do yeah. So, you know what I mean? I I, I want to maybe split the line there and say, like, yes, I mean, children will definitely try to manipulate you, uh, but I don't think that they are so emotionally all over the place because that is their intent. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're just the girl crying in the bathroom at the party all the time and she can't help it either exactly yeah but uh the crying child just so you know grandma wanted to know after having personally witnessed a child manipulating a parent crying she receives a response that makes reference to creative parenting the womanly art of breastfeeding how to really love your child uh, and the continuum concept. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, like I, if Megan were here, she could definitely speak to all the like the coldishness around around breastfeeding. That, but I remember when my you know when my wife was pregnant five years ago. It's like oh my god, like it, you know because it, it, it's it's it swung all the way from like kind of uh, which there's a lot of like economic and class related uh, ways that this fucked up, like really kind of pushing formula decades ago to now it is like completely in the opposite direction. It is basically, I mean, as with anything, it's like what you know whatever whatever mothers and whatever women are doing society is going to find a way to say that it is wrong right you know but. any 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 child any rearing of the children yeah, yeah. the feeding of the children yeah. the rearing of them the breastfeeding discourse is 
um, psycho is something beyond beyond psych. Also, yeah. just like uh, it's, don't upset people, please. Everyone's doing their best. Mostly, yeah. here's another one. This is like the most. Imagine writing into an it's a now defunct uh, advice column. Yeah. Question: Can you put me in touch with an online service or catalog that sells children's Halloween costumes? Thanks. Full name. <laughs> Can you put me in? Wait, does this person never heard? Of- I mean, just get Google, man. Like, just yeah, Google, dude. This information is readily at your fingertips. You know. You could write into a a blog for advice, but not dog pilot or like or ask yeah. Jeeves. Yeah, yeah at right. the time, yeah. presumably oh, yeah. at the time. That um, takes me back. I, I asked Jeeves. Yeah, I asked Jeeves many things, <laughs> but just so you know, you know, if you write into a blog like this asking asking a question like that, you know what answer you're going to get. The, uh, the- hi, Maureen. There are many such sources online. However. Have you considered making a costume? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It can be a fun project that yeah. children can help with too. And if you don't have time to sew, you can look for unusual items of clothing at thrift stores, which can be made into unique costumes. Yeah, many children have hidden allergies to plastic. That, right. Yes. Products. The other the other wonderful aspect of parenting advice right now is just a complete failure to understand how people's time is just completely not their own under late capital. Like, who the fuck has? Time? I mean, like, yes, I, I would, I would like, but like, who the fuck has time one to like learn to sew if you don't already know that? But you know, it's like, come on, like, I'm asking to where to buy something, and you're telling me to make it myself. Like, fuck off, you bourgeois asshole. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Like, okay, so I don't have time to sew, but I do have time to go up and down the aisles of a thrift store searching for the perfect, unique Halloween costume that I can make for my child without Uh, sewing. God, all of this is why I generally avoid parody blogs and websites. I, I, I simply I mean, this was this was barely a game. It was more of a slog, but um. All of the like early, the other early parenting advice that I was trying to fashion into a quiz was like, you should dip your baby in lard. <laughs> Just dip it in lard. <laughs> that's what you should do and never hold it and don't name it anything that's has too many O's or curvy letters because you're going to make it like um, not tough enough or something. <laughs> lard. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Nice. uh, I mean, there are there are kids lotions that uh, uh, are quite greasy. I will say that, but uh, but yeah, you should get two toddlers and you cover them in lard and you label them one and three and you set them loose. This sounds like some dumbass fraternity hate (laughs) ritual, right? Like the senior prank thing. (laughs) Lard wrestling, yeah. Anyway. Well, no, thank you. And yes, uh, yeah, I I always love hearing what's on parenting blogs and I, which reinforces why I will not read them. (laughs) (laughs) I always will. Well, this was fun as always. This has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find Megan on Twitter at Teslersaurus. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywell. You can find me on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Better Red Pod, R-E-A-D, and email us at betterredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if it's not to confess your secret marriage. <laughs> Seriously, we don't want to know. Go air that shit out elsewhere. Ashley Mattis, whatever the fuck. You know? <laughs> just, just don't therapy. Don't.
<laughs> yeah, go to therapy. Don't, 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 don't email us that, please. Um, our intro music is Lev Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Next week, we have John Okada's No-No Boy with Jamaica Kincaid's Lucy on deck after that. And soon, we'll be doing Wheeland. Thanks, comrades. Oh!